You're listening to an Al Mahdi Institute podcast. Thank you for listening. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala now is responding to their belief systems, we are seeing that there is plurality in the belief systems of the Meccans. They are idol worshippers, so on and so forth. So Allah says to them, and those people who take authorities, authorities beside Allah, their justification is X, Y, and Z. But alongside that. From reading the verse, it appears very much that the context was one in which people were acquainted with the notion of the Son of God, that God has sons. Now it's easier to understand in the Meccan, uh, sorry, in the Medinian revelation, because there the Prophet is encountering the Jews and the Christians, the prevalence of this theology. But it appears here from this Meccan surah that the Christian theology of son might have been there, or the theology of children. That you know, the Jews often say that we are the chosen ones of God and we are the children of God. Now the response here is striking, because God can flatly deny, "I do not have a son. I am needless of anything." Yes, but you have to be mindful that this Quran is addressing a certain mindset. So it has to be in accordance with that mindset, the response that God is giving, and yet be accurate within its own self. So beyond that limited context, when the verse is read. It needs to make sense in itself, independent of that context, and that's the beauty of the Quran—the selection of the words and terms and the phrases. Now, look at how beautifully the Quran responds to this, and this is why, when we look at the language of the Quran, the places where it repeats itself, the high level of consistency, the choice of words, we become convinced that this is not the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because how could he have retained something that he said? At the beginning of his prophetic mission in Makkah, and say the same thing in the midst of a battle in Badr, the same word is used to express the same meaning. How could he have retained that? And how can he retain the sequences? Allah is very particular. I gave you ears, eyes, and hearts. Very particular about this. How could the Prophet Muhammad have ever remembered all these sequences? And then in the reverse, I sealed their hearts, eyes, and ears. Or ears and so why reverse when he's talking about disbelief? It's the reverse sequence, consistently reverse sequence. When he's talking about the initiation of the existence of a human being, it's this sequence. How could the prophet have retained all of that? And the thing is, it is accurate within itself. The Meccans obviously did not appreciate this, and we are in a position to appreciate it to a much greater level. Those who will come after us a thousand years from today will build on the knowledge base that we have had today, and we contribute, and we all take little little steps, and it opens itself up even more. So now, look at the way in which this thing is responded. This theology: If Allah wished to take a son, He does not say if Allah wanted to beget a son. There's a huge difference. If Allah wished to take a son. It's very different from saying if Allah wanted to give birth to a son, because He is speaking in a context where son and children are only by way of giving birth, and hence that Surah Tawheed responds in a way that He does not give birth to anything, nor has He taken birth from anything. So He is above the whole of this system, and hence these words are so accurate. Had God wanted to take a son. Now look at what follows. He would have chosen whatever he wants from whatever he has created. There is such a beautiful statement that God is making here that at the level of God and the world, everything belongs to God equally, or everything relates to God equally. He could have taken Isa, 
موسا جبرائیل میکائیل اے پلانٹ اے سن اور اے ٹری اور این اینیمل اور این انسیکٹ لک ایٹ ہاؤ ونڈرفلی گاڈ از سیٹنگ آؤٹ دس تھنگ ان دا مائنڈس دیٹ ایوری بڈی بلونگس ٹو گاڈ ایکولی ریلیٹس ٹو گاڈ ایکولی دیر از نو اسپیشل ریلیشن دیٹ دا ہیومن ہیز ود گاڈ دیٹ دا ٹری ڈز ناٹ ہیو ود گاڈ اور دیٹ این اینجل ڈز ناٹ ہیو ود گاڈ ایٹ دیٹ لیول آف گاڈ اینڈ ادر ریلیشن شپ آف کورس ہیومن بینگس ہیو اسپیشل ریلیشن ود گاڈ بیکاز وی آر موسٹ پروفاؤنڈ آف از کریشن But from the aspect of God and the other, whereas, where other means everything else, God's relationship is a simple relationship with all. He is the owner of it all. Allah is the mulk of the heavens and the earth. He can forgive whoever he wants and he can punish whoever he wants. Here he's not putting any conditions. If you do good, I will reward you. If you do bad, I will punish you. He says, no, at that level of relationship, You are my ownership. It's amazing that then the theologians are in a state of mess and a twist as to how do we justify this verse? How can God punish somebody unjustly? The fact is God dictates the terms of justice and injustice. The notion of justice cannot grasp God. You cannot confine God to the notion of justice that God himself has dictated. He is above justice. Whatever he says becomes just. So it's impressing upon the minds and so beautifully with the choice of words. If Allah wanted, he could have taken or chosen whatever he wants from what he has created. There is no special relationship that anybody has with God flatly finished. In that respect, you or human being, you or angel, you or animal, and you or plant, you're all one and the same. In that sense of relationship. So he's addressing the minds that see the notion of birth as similarity of genes. coming from a womb, he is not even conceding to what that phrase or that notion. He's not even saying, I would not have given birth. He's just discounting it straight away to change their minds and their thinking totally. Because as soon as he were to say that, for example, it would give certain credibility to their notions that God gives birth or God has children. The next verse, he envelopes the night over the day and day over the night. Now here, I don't understand what it means. Is he talking about a reality that we are unaccustomed with right now? Is he talking about something in itself or is he talking about the night and day in our context? Obviously, the Meccans who are listening to this verse must make sense of this, that the night envelopes the day, the day envelopes the night. It's a factual thing and God is doing this. Does it have a greater relevance than the immediate relevance that the Meccans found in their minds or that we find by observing. In another place it says, He infuses the diet in the day and day in the night and that's a continuous process. If you look at the two ends of the day, one end of the day is getting infused in the night and one end of the night is getting infused in the day. It's a beautiful thing that he's describing. But you cover to envelope that there is a whole night And within the whole night, there is a day. And within the whole day, there's a night. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the space beyond the atmosphere of earth? Where there is nothing but darkness? And all of a sudden, the darkness is broke and it's light because of the way in which the heavens around the earth. Yes, the, the layers around the earth, atmospheric layers. These are the things that make it appear to us. As I said, With the Quran, we need to be humble to say, look, I understand this much. I don't understand more than this. Now, he has said 
He has sakhara shamsa wal qamar. He has made shams and qamar subservient. Look anywhere in the Quran. In relation to shams and qamar, he will say sakhar. Sakhar, sakhar, sakhar. He has made them subservient. In another place, Allah says, if Allah does not hold them together, the heavens and the earth, then who will hold them together apart from him? And they will all collide. What does that mean to us? Now, we still have to figure these things out. But as we go and we progress in our understanding of nature, astrophysics, cosmology, we will see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says that he is directly holding them and directly uh, making them subservient, it shows that his direct involvement is there. These are not mere objects that are floating at a particular velocity and there is not the centripetal force that holds it by gravity. Yes, that the gravity of one planet is holding another planet and the star is holding another one. He is attributing these forces and the sun and the moon staying in their circuit to himself. Now that could be gravity, but then that verse shows to us that gravity is not a dead mechanical force. It is some living force. And if we look at the angelology that the Prophet has described to us, the Blessed Prophet and the Imam alayhim, they attribute the forces of gravity and nature to angels, that these are angelic forces. Now, in your language, these angels are gravitation. In the modern 21st century language, in a language that has gone where gravitation was not to be understood, it was called an angelic force. It is not a physical force that you can understand. It's an angelic force. But angelic force means nonetheless it's a natural force. But natural force does not mean it's a dead mechanistic thing. It's a very much living thing. It's alive to itself. And there is a deliberate control that's being exercised. Ajal musamma, whenever you look at it in the Quran, ajal musamma means appointed time. These things have their duration and they will finish. The sun and the moon. Now, it's stands to reason, right, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this, this motion and dynamics of the universe, they are always changing. So the sun and the moon will be rotating to a given time and then they will be destroyed. That's not the problem. The verse of the Quran, The hour has come near and the moon has broken. Yes? Now, in Shikak of Qamar, it's going to, it's a futuristic event that will happen according to Tafsir, yes? Now, here is the thing. That's not the problem. The problem is with the description of the Quran. These descriptions are very accurate. In the sense of, there is no guesswork in there. God is committing himself that this is what will happen. What does that show? It shows a being cognizant with the workings of the system so fully that it knows the duration and its end and finish. This is the time when it will finish. That will come when the moon will break into. There is no ifs or buts about it. It's going to happen. End of story. Whether you like it or not, the mountains are going to be passed by tahsabuhum jamida. The Quran says you feel they are frozen and solid objects. They will pass by like a cloud. These are the things that will happen. A meteor, al-qari'ah. What is a qari'ah? The, the, the thumping reality. What is it? Is it a meteor? What is it? It is these things about the Quran that baffle the mind. That it is all so much a destined system. 
It's a closed system. But within that closed system, God says that he has left your destinies open. To figure these things out from the Quran is one of the most wonderful journeys anybody can take. As to, well, how do I reconcile now? Here, it's a very much closed circuit. It's a system that's done and dusted. No matter what you do, the moon will break. No matter what you do, the sun will finish its uh, energy. No matter what you do, the earth will collapse, finish. But in all of that, if these mighty objects are destined, then of course, anything accommodated within the mighty objects as little bodies belonging to the same material as these objects are also destined. And yet within that closed circuit is the openness of destiny. To figure these things out is one of the best things that ever happens to the mind. To try and work it all out as to what Allah is saying. But as I said, we need to humble ourselves and we need to admit to our inability to be able to fathom what is being said accurately and hence we are always moved towards an understanding and a greater understanding. Look at this verse. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. Now the Meccans might have had certain theologies that we are created differently. Some are more endowed than others. You know, the Meccans had this theology that some are chosen, some are not chosen. Maybe they also had this theology that some are created by one God, another one is created by another God. I don't know what theologies they had. But the fact that this verse <coughs> is stating what it is, at a very surface level, it was addressing a particular false belief in the minds of the Meccans. But in doing so, it is giving us a gem of reality that we haven't opened up to even now. As we said, the Quran has to be true. At that level of the Meccan understanding, it has to be true at a later level of the 21st century. He is the one who has created you from one soul. Imagine. Has a period of dahar come upon human beings when he was not worthy of mention. <coughs> it seems God is giving the notion of insan to a reality beyond bodies. Yes? Allah is not considering these bodies as insan in the Quran. Insan is another reality. We gave our amana to the heavens and the earth. They and Jibal. And they refused. Insan took it. Insan is both oppressive and ignorant. He is talking about the nature of whatever is insan. Now here Allah is saying he has created you from one soul. If you look at the creation and the Genesis, Allah makes this very clear that prior to the fashioning of Adam inside a human form, you were all created from one soul. He created you, he fashioned you, then we said to the Malaika, prostrate before Adam. So the creation came before. Adam's formation came after. How amazing is this? And the Quran is extremely consistent. He is the one who has made for you from your souls, your pairs. The level of consistency. Your creation and your issuance is nothing but like the going of one soul. Let us go into this. You know, 
sometimes ponder, why does God say, Khadaqal mawta wal hayat? He created death and life. Why does he say, Kuntum amwatun fahyakum? You are dead, he gave you life. It means you were, but in the state of death, death precedes life. The death that comes subsequent to life is another death. The life that comes subsequent to that death is another life. We are going through constant cycles of life and death. But death precedes life in the scheme of creation. We need to explain that at some point. I've actually given in this world some of the Arbain lectures here. You might want to refer to them. So Allah is saying he has created you from one soul. And then he made its pair. What is the human soul? Think about it carefully. I want us to go through a little exercise. When I say I am, yes, who am I? What am I? Think about this. My features are from the genes of my parents, are not from me. Two, I can change every one of my features. In a futuristic world, in a futuristic world, there will be no human being, but they can mutate themselves in whatever way they want. Yes? Fat, tall, thin, whatever they want, they will be able to do. Their features, everything about them. So the first thing I am not is my features. What about my gender? In a future world, people will be able to change gender between the morning and the evening. So gender is not me. Is my taste in food? But that's cultural. I can change my taste in food. Is my color me? No, I can change the pigment of my skin. What is me? My religion? I can change my religion. There is nothing about me that I think is me, is actually me. Can you not see that? My likes and dislikes? Ah, these are social conditioning. You can change your likes and dislikes. Your sense of beauty and ugliness. They are always passing with the fashions of the community. With the society. Nothing till now is me. What am I? Yes? Don't anybody say you're Arif, yeah? I get, I, I get that a lot in, uh, with, with people, you know, the young ones. Say, but you're Arif. Yeah. How did you forget that? So we ask, well, who am I? Gender does not define me. Color does not define me. Features do not define me. Religion does not define me. Nothing defines me. My sense of truth and falsehood. <laughs> It will change. With time, it will change. You thought, I'm saying to the human beings, that slavery was right. It was just. By the 21st century, slavery is unjust. Something that we thought was so just has become unjust now. You thought not giving women the right to vote was just. Now they're prime ministers. Think about this. What about you is you? Nothing. The truth is, that the human being is a simple state of awakening. I am. That's it. But this I am is awakening in such restricted circumstances that it is fooled into thinking that I am this. And that is why the constant process of peeling things away. I always say the difficult task in my life has been to peel away the theology that's in my head. It's taken me 40 years 40 years to peel it all away, that I'm none of these belief systems. They are all imposed in my head. None of this has been me or my genuine inquiry into what is the truth. When you look at the human soul, there are no two people who are different. You are in that body and you think you are that. 
You are in that body and you think you are that. And I'm in this body, think I'm this. If I could be in your body, I'll become you. And if you could be in my body, you'll become me. The human soul is a simple state of awakening I am. It's like people taking birth in machinery and thinking that machinery is them. It's the same thing with the fetus and the, and the little child. The child awakens in a little body and they feel, oh, I am this body with the specifications. So what is the human soul? <coughs> it is this beautiful realization of I am consciousness to the level that humanity has. This splendid level of consciousness. Now Allah SWT says, I've created you from one soul. This one soul is this level of consciousness, awareness. And we are all the same. And we are all the same in that. There are no two people who are different. You will say about the prophets, the prophets are not different at all. They've just actualized their humanity in a beautiful way that every one of us needs to do. But the prophet, the blessed prophet, is my humanity at its fullest in his form. And Yazid is the failure of my humanity to its fullest in his form. It's nothing but me. Now, if we were to look at it that way, then human soul is like one light. It is refracted in a prism that gives you many lights and you feel that these are many, many lights. It's just one thing. Now he says, he created you from one soul and from it, it made, he made its pair. It's one awakening. And from Adam, he made Hawa. Hawa could have been a genetic being that was created from Adam's rib. Yeah, of course, when Adam was asked, why is Hawa, who, what is she called? He said, she's called Hawa. And they asked why. He said, because she has been made from a living being. So, of course, we have this uh, hadith that, you know, uh, Hawa was made from the clay that was left over from Adam, that was taken from the Adi Mularb, the surface of the earth and whatever. But, of course, living tissue was instilled in that whatever it was, and she was made into Hawa. And when Adam looks at her, he says, why do I find such comfort with you? Why do I find such companionship with you? Such intimate belonging to you. I don't even know you. And she just says, this is how my God has made me. What she was supposed to say was, I am you. You are me. We are nothing but one thing. So that gives a new meaning to soulmate. Everybody is our soulmate if we could actually realize that, yes? Now the accompanying hadith literature with the creation and the genesis is that Human beings were created in pairs in order for them to procreate. And that was the only reason. And therefore, the law system that we have is only to govern the body, not the soul. And that is why the Quran is explicit when it talks about the reward and standing with God of man and women being equal. So at the base level, there is no distinction between a man and a man, a woman and a man, and a man and a woman. There is no distinction at all. It's the same soul. So all these things that we have, that there is distinction and there is fundamental distinction. These are fundamental distinctions, not of the soul, but of the body. The soul does not have any distinction. Yes? The fact that a woman can change the gender, become a man, she will enjoy the role of a man. And a man becomes a woman, enjoy the role of a a woman, so on and so forth, these are very arbitrary. They have no fixed value to them. It is so long as I'm in this body, this is how I will abide. Yes? 
a person who's a good, uh, strong man, you will give them certain duties that you don't give a weak person. It's something like that. It's the, it's the function of the body that is being regulated. Allah says, He created in you in the womb of your mothers within three darknesses. Of course, this is a very uh, medical and scientific verse and I don't know uh, the medics would be able to confirm it at some point that what are these three darknesses. For the life of me, I don't think the Meccans understood this. So this again goes to that particular theory of ours that the verse who is an artist, he gives to that person who is seeing what they require and go beyond it and depict the reality as it stands within itself, even if that person does not understand. If you disbelieve, then Allah is needless. What happened was that when Adam was bestowed so lavishly by God, the angels, of course, they also felt a sense of envy and jealousy, right? They also felt that. They said, look, we are better than he is. And, you know, they were also arrogant, the angels. The failure of our minds is that we group everything into one. We want one particular notion that we can fit everything in. The world of God is not like that. It's a complex world. Yes? Like, for example, people ask me sometimes, well, what happens after that? So, well, how, how do I know? There are so many things happening after that. Who knows what will happen to a particular individual after their death? Will they go to sleep? Will they be awake? Will they be awake but inactive? Will they be awake and active? Will they be in a different place? Will they be around here rejoicing? Will they be able to communicate with us? Because Allah leaves all those doors open in the Quran. He talks about so many different individuals in so many different ways after that. Some in Yasin will say, who has woken us up? There you go. And some are now giving good news to those who are still alive. That look, this is what God has given us. Some, he says, will be in eternal torment. Some will say, when will the day of Qiyamah come? Yes, God is talking about all these possibilities in the Quran. Our minds want a simple rule that fits one for all. One size fits all. That is not how reality is. So here, when we talk about angels, they're not same. They're all very different. These angels that were there at the time of Adam's creation, these were angels that you can see. They also were conceited. We are better than he is. They said that as well. Although they weren't as audacious as Iblis, but they made the same claim. He's going to do all these bad things, but we are doing this. It was a conceited statement to an extent, right? Allah said, but he knows what you know not. And then he taught Adam. The thing is that Adam had that aptitude, that potential. And the angels were frightened of it. Those angels in question. I'm sure it wasn't the Grand Hazrat Jibrail or Hazrat Mikhail or Hazrat Israfil or the Hamilin Larsh. It wasn't those great ones. But I'm sure whatever angels were there, they were frightened out of their wits that what has God created? This is a mighty creation of God. Who is old enough to remember the six million dollar man? Yeah? Do you remember the power that that man had? But what was frightening was when they made the seven million dollar man. That was frightening. We say, if this thing is this powerful, what if you make a seven million dollar man who does not have any moral restraints? That was the moral dilemma that they placed in that little program, if you remember, right? That he is so gifted. What if he becomes corrupt? So the angels were frightened at the sheer aptitude of Adam. 
When Iblis was asked, why did you not prostrate? Iblis did not say that he is lesser than I, that I am greater than he is in my knowledge base. Iblis did not make that argument. Angels made that argument of spirituality. We will do your tasbih, we will do your taqdis. We have that knowledge. Allah is saying he will by far surpass you in your knowledge. And he proves it to them. When he says to Iblis, why did you not prostrate? Iblis never said that I am more endowed than he is or gifted. I have more knowledge. What did Iblis say? I am better because I am created of fire. Iblis subsequently said, Allah, you will not find these people grateful to you. Why did Iblis say that? He actually says this in the Quran. Allah narrates Iblis that I will go, I will misguide them. And you will not find Akhtarohum Shakirun. You will not find majority of them thankful to you. You see, Iblis is saying to God, you have misplaced your favors in this instance. You know, I know you, God, you're, you know, everything's brilliant about you. But in this instance, you've misplaced your, I mean, can Iblis speak like that with God? It begs a question. What was going on? God is so calmly talking with Iblis. And Iblis doesn't believe in him. Yeah, your prophets will come, but I'll try and misguide all of them. Save your chosen prophets. So, Iblis, where's your knowledge base coming from? You are one God and there'll be Qiyamah. Spare me until the day of Qiyamah. He is the biggest Muslim, this Iblis. He knows everything. He is the real Muslim. And he's the biggest kafir. Only a Muslim can be a kafir. You know that, by the way. A kafir, nowadays we call a person who does not believe in God. Because these poor people don't understand God. So why should they believe in him? The real kafir is the one who believes in God and knows God and then does not give God his right full due. That's what Iblis did. Kafir is the Muslim. Not the non-believer, the poor guy who doesn't know anything better. So now, Iblis said, you will not find them grateful. What is the meaning of grateful when Iblis was saying it? See, Iblis says to God, you've given him so much. You will not find him utilizing any of this properly. What is the meaning of being grateful? Iblis is saying, you will not attain your objective from this one. Because he will not be grateful. Allah does not want us to sit down and thank him. This is an existential thing. Allah says, when shakartum if you give thanks, I'll give you more. If you play the game of tennis, you'll become fit. Not just hold the racket in your hand and say, Allah, thank you for giving me the racket. Play the thing. <laughs> it's like giving you a book. You know, I made a little comment. Forgive me for this comment, yes? Putting the Quran on the head is a beautiful thing and I love it. Yes, I'm sounding like Donald Trump now, don't I? <laughs> but if you put a university book on your head, will it go inside your head? I'm just saying something that was supposed to be in there has gone on there. Yes? Gratefulness is to actualize ourselves through the gifts of God. If you are thankful, I will give you more. What does that mean? The more you refine your beings, the greater will your existence be. It's not Allahumma laka shukra. That's a good thing. Do it. But thanking God for the opportunity of life the opportunity to become godly, the opportunity to break, you know, new ground intellectually, the opportunity to grow as a human family and human community, community, that is gratefulness. You give somebody the opportunity to go to a university and this, every day they text you, thank you 10,000 times, you'll get fed up. Wouldn't you? You'll say, what, what is this? This is not grateful, you're annoying me. But God is not like that. Keep on saying thank you to God. What is the real <coughs> sense of gratefulness for a person who goes to the university? Qualify. 
get that degree, actualize yourself. That is the meaning of gratefulness. And that is what Iblis said to Allah. Yes, that you will not find them grateful. They will waste all of this that you've given to them. Yes. I always say to the Muslims that when you put the majority of humanity into hell, you are saying that Iblis won it and God lost. God said, no, I have confidence he will win. He will do what I have desired out of him. Yes. So God will not put everybody into hell. If that's the case, then Iblis was true and God was untrue. So God says here, if you, if you are ungrateful, well, Allah is needless. Look, here God is depicting a beautiful relationship between God and the human beings. In many instances, God shows how much he is invested in humanity. That the success of humanity actually means a lot to God. He shows that. But in this instance, because of the Meccan mindset, he is talking about his state of aloofness and transcendence from the human story. If you are ungrateful, it does not mean if you don't worship me in the sense of do namaz and sajda. Devotion to God means service to God. I've not created man and jinn save to, save, but save to devote. Devotion does not mean we just say subhanallah, subhanallah, Devotion means to bring about the fullness of our potential. Devote yourself to me. I have placed my nature inside you. Create, build, go out of the atmosphere of the earth. Dig deep into the earth. Give life like I give life. Defeat death like I defeat death. Break through through all challenges because that is my spirit inside you. That is the sense of gratefulness and devotion. So Allah is saying to them, look, if you do not give thanks to me, I'm needless of you at that level. What does that show to us? That shows to us that this life has not been one that we have naively understood. That God just made us and placed us on this earth. No, there's something else that's gone on. If God had just made us and placed on this earth, I will argue with God and say, why did you create me? I did not want to be in this hell all of the earth, hell of, of, of an earth, in which seven billion people are starving, they are under the yoke of oppression, they are dying, there's misery upon misery, and then you call this a favor? This is damnation. You know, I'm doing you a favor by not cursing. That is not God at all. God has not done any of these things in the way we've imagined. We and God have made a pact. And God is saying to us, look, in this pact, I am the benevolent one. I've got nothing to gain. I've done everything for you as a favor. If you don't do it, you're going to lose. And that's why he says, if you thank, then I will. I prefer that for you. <clears throat> and if you're ungrateful, then I do not like that for you. It's nothing to do with me. Can you see this? This level of relationship that God displays is quite beautiful. That it is not the case that I have created you for my purpose and just put you there for you to worship me. It is a pact we've made. It is really a pact we've made. And I've endowed you in this way. If you don't do it, I'm not going to lose anything. If you do it, you're going to gain something. So that's the sort of relationship God is impressing upon the minds of the Meccans. And I think this is something we need to understand as well in present day that, you know, this naive understanding, why did God create me? That question should be, why did you ask Allah to create you? Because creation does not mean to bring about something from nothing. Creation means to fashion in the Quran. Isa says, I will create from you 
from clay, the form of a bird. So creation means to fashion. We already were prior to the fashioning. Can you see that? The question is, why did you ask God to create you if he did not want to do anything with this life? Because it's going to become a burden on you. Like Allah also says, the word deen comes from the word dain, burden. Yes, a debt, an opportunity. And you'll be answerable for that on the day of Qiyamah. The Blessed Prophet, I think I'll finish here. The Blessed Prophet stood nights worshipping Allah. So Lady Aisha said to him, O Prophet, the verse says, Allah has forgiven you, O Muhammad, all your sins that have passed and the sins that are to come. You don't need to do this. He said, should I not be a grateful servant of God to God? What does that mean? That I asked for this. He gave it to me. <coughs> Think about this carefully. If somebody comes and gives me lavish gifts, which I didn't want, and makes me accustomed to a luxurious lifestyle, and then frowns upon me for not thanking him, I will say, actually, your gift was a burden on me. I didn't want it. I could do without it. You made me accustomed to it, and now you expect me to thank you. It would have been better had you never given it to me. I would have never gotten accustomed to such an easy lifestyle. I didn't want this thing. And on the other hand, you keep on giving it to me, and you keep on expecting me to thank you. I don't want your gifts. Can you see that? The only way we can thank God is when we have asked for something, and he has given it to us. I can't thank God if my notion is that I, God has made me with lungs and then now I have to thank him for the oxygen. But I'll ask God, why didn't you give me lungs in the first place? If you gave me lungs by priority, you have to give me oxygen. Why should I thank you for that? <laughs> you created it that way. Are you finding this uh, a little startling? <laughs> unless, unless I asked you to give me lungs and oxygen and then I will thank you. See, the thing is that we've got it wrong. We have asked for all of this. And we are in a state of debt to God. And that's why the Prophet Muhammad said, okay, even if he's forgiven my sins, I'm in a state of debt to him. No matter how much I thank him, I'm still in a state of debt to God. Support Al-Mahadi Institute. Visit almahadi.edu.